Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, the book of Amos, chapter one, continued. Well, overriding all that the prophet Amos tells us is that only Jehovah God of Israel is sovereign over all the earth. So as we continue today in Amos chapter 1, it is paramount that we keep in mind that as the backdrop for the entire book, it is that Jehovah was not a typical God, as defined and imagined by virtually all known cultures, including Israel's in the 8th century BC, the era in which Amos lived and prophesied. And as with all Torah class lessons, it's one of my goals to, to lift you out of our current era and cultural mindset and project us backward in time to the various biblical eras and their evolving societies in order for us to gain a truer understanding of what these divinely inspired writers intended to impart to posterity. However, keep in mind that these Hebrew writers did not come from a universalist mindset. That is, they did not think in terms of creating a document um, to, to be read outside their own peculiar Israelite culture, nor is something that ought to have much effect or even application to the world in general. Thus, what makes Amos significant among the prophets is that he actually opens a door, clearly has an intent, to also address people and nations beyond Israel. And he is really the first prophet to do so. Therefore, what he has to say in that regard is innovative, even though the foundational theology he builds upon is anything but new or innovative. Amos bases his entire theological viewpoint in the covenant of Moses, the law, the Torah, that was given to Moses around six centuries before his day, and so was something that had long been established. Now for Amos, the core issue was that not only Israel, both Ephraim, Israel, and Judah, but also the nations had strayed from this established law, which I think we today are probably better to think of and characterize as God's unchanging and objective moral code that is intended for all humanity. The opening words of chapter 1 depict Jehovah as a lion that is about to tear into his prey, a sort of apex predator who is going to send terror and devastation upon eight nations or kingdoms for their rebellion against him. Now of these targeted nations, six are pagan and two Judah and Ephraim represent 
all Israel, even though they are His own set-apart and special people. Well, let's reread the first chapter of Amos. So get your Bibles out, follow along with me, and we're going to reread the entire first chapter to get our bearings today. Amos chapter 1. A lot is said in this first chapter. Amos chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the sheep owners in Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah, and Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, Adonai is roaring from Zion, thundering from Jerusalem. The shepherd's pastures will mourn, and Mount Carmel's summit will wither. Here is what Adonai says. For Damasex, that's Damascus's, three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they threshed Gilead with an iron-spiked threshing sledge. I will send fire to the house of Hazael, and it will consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break the bars of Damasek's gates. I will cut off the inhabitants from Bichat Avin, and him who holds the scepter from Beit Aden. Then the people of Aram will go into exile in Kerr, says Adonai. Here's what Adonai says. For Gaza's three crimes, no four. I will not reverse it. Because they exiled a whole population and handed them over to Edom. I will send fire to the wall of Gaza, and it will consume its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Echron, and the rest of the Philistines will perish, says Adonai God. Here is what Adonai says. For Zor's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they exiled a whole population to Edom and did not remember the covenant with kinsmen. I will send fire to the wall of Zor, and it will consume its palaces. Here's what Adonai says. For Edom's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because with sword he pursued his kinsmen and threw aside all pity, constantly nursing his anger, forever fomenting his fury. I will send fire on Timon, and it will consume the palaces of Botsra. Here is what Adonai says. For the people of Ammon's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they ripped apart pregnant women just to expand their territory. I will set fire to the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume its palaces amid shouts on the day of battle, amid a storm on the day of the whirlwind. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says Adonai. So oracles of destruction are outlined for eight nations that begins with Damascus. At this time, Damascus was sort of an extended city-state that essentially had become the capital of a region called Aram. Today it's called Syria. Thus, much like in Hosea's and Amos's prophecies when they will call out Samaria for destruction, it's because Samaria was the capital city of the kingdom of Ephraim, Israel. But Samaria was meant to be inclusive indicating all of Ephraim Israel. As used here then, Damascus and Aram are to be taken as parallel terms. It wasn't only the city of Damascus 
but also the entire nation of Aram that is being put under judgment in verse 3. Now the strange, a strange formulaic statement is now made. For Damascus, three crimes, no four. See, this opening formula of three crimes, no four, will be used for the remaining seven judgment oracles as well. And what is the intent and meaning of this strange phrase? Well, in order to understand it, we need to first notice another numbering scheme and pattern that it occurs within. It is the recognized numbering pattern in the Bible of 7 8. 7 8. That is, the number 8 is paired with the number 7 in what scholars of ancient Middle Eastern literature call ascending staircase parallelism. Don't worry about what it's called. The point is that you will notice that there are eight oracles of judgment against eight nations, yet seven of these nations come outside the focus and main subject of Amos, which is the nation of Ephraim Israel, with Ephraim Israel being the eighth nation that is to expect divine judgment. The thing to grasp is, this is a rather common literary feature of that biblical era, employed throughout the Middle Eastern nations, not just Israel. So while the point of it might be a little obscure to us in modern times, it was obvious to the people of Amos' era. Now we see this 7-8 pattern in a number of places in the Old Testament. Okay, For instance, when Aaron was going to be ordained as high priest, we read the following that begins in Leviticus chapter 8, starting at verse 33. You are not to go out from the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are over, since Adonai will be consecrating you for seven days. He ordered done what has been done today in order to make atonement for you. You are to remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting uh, day and night for seven days, thereby obeying what Adonai ordered done, so that you may not die. For this is what I have ordered. Aaron and his sons did all the things which Adonai ordered through Moses. Then moving down a few more verses, starting at Leviticus 9.1, on the eighth day, Moses called Aharon, his sons and the leaders of Israel, and said to Aharon, Take a male calf for a sin offering and a ram for a bird offering, both without defect, and offer them both before Adonai. Okay. We also find the 7 8 pattern used in the formula for the spring biblical feasts of Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits, of course, as well, and in the fall biblical feast of Sukkot. That is, there is an element of these feasts that is for seven days. But then there's an eighth day as well. Leviticus 23, verses 34 through 36 tell the people of Israel, on the 15th day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day, there's to be a holy convocation, do no kind of ordinary work. For seven days, you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. On the eighth day, 
you are to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. So whereas the number seven is symbolic of ideal completeness, the number eight is symbolic of like the climax of something. It's climactic. And when used together, the 7-8 pattern represents the fullest possible totality of something. We find this 7-8 pattern expressed in other places in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, as well. In Micah 5.1, But you, Beit Lechem near Ephrat, so small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come forth to me the future ruler of Israel whose origins are far in the past, back in ancient times. Therefore he will give up Israel only until she who is in labor gives birth. Then the rest of his kinsmen will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and feed his flock in the strength of Adonai, in the majesty of the name of Adonai his God, and they will stay put as he grows great to the very ends of the earth. And this will be peace. If Asher invades our land, it's Assyria. If he overruns our fortresses, we will raise seven shepherds against him. Eight leaders of men. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1, Send your resources out over the seas. Eventually you will reap a return. Divide your merchandise into seven or eight shares. Since you don't know what disasters may come on the earth. Further, we see this 7-8 pattern get expanded into larger numbers. Psalm 90, verse 10. The span of our life is 70 years, or if we're strong, 80. Yet at best it is toil and sorrow over in a moment, and then we are gone. Even larger. 1 Kings 5, 29 and 30, Shlomo had 70,000 men to carry loads, 80,000 stonecutters in the hills. Besides Shlomo's 3,300 supervisors who were in charge of the people doing the work. So, as a result, now that we've fleshed out that 7-8 pattern, we too need to understand the 3-4 pattern. First, the number three is in Hebrew, shilosh. Shilosh, in addition to indicating the number three, means harmony, new life, completeness. The number four means all the compass directions, which symbolically means the entire earth. So, when we understand that, then it becomes clearer that saying for Damascus's three crimes, no four, it is, under, is it an understood expression of that era, meaning for all the wrong things God against God that they have done. It is not intended to literally mean three specific crimes, but you know what, on second thought, there were four specific crimes. And then we're to start looking for exactly what those four crimes were. And because this 3-4 pattern of meaning of the crimes these eight nations committee, uh, committed falls within <laughs> the 7-8 pattern of meaning by listing those seven nations that includes both Gentile and Hebrew nations, that is, these nations that together represent both the people groups that God divided the world into upon His covenant with Abraham. Gentiles and Hebrews, 
then the concept is that not only those eight nations listed will be under God's judgment, but rather this applies to all the nations on the earth because they're all guilty before God. We also need to notice that while in the near term for Amos, it might only be those eight named nations that are affected, from a prophetic viewpoint, it will eventually be all the nations on earth put under God's judgment for their crimes against Him. Listen to Joel chapter 4, starting at verse 1, For then at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment there for my people, my heritage Israel, whom they scattered among the seasons, then they divided my land. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, accompanied by all the angels, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before Him. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep He will place at His right hand, the goats at His left. So before we get into the specifics of some of what Damascus is being judged for doing, we need to back away and understand the far-reaching theological principle being developed here okay, that has been shelved within Christianity for going on 18 centuries. It is the God's laws, His defined and objective moral code, applies to everyone, every place on earth. It's not just for Israel. Prior to the covenant of Moses with, uh, on Mount Sinai, there was something that existed that Paul says is natural and it's intrinsic to all humans. It has gained the name natural law. I want you to really stay with me here for the next couple of minutes, okay? You don't have to be looking at your Bibles. Just look up here. Listen to Romans 2, 9-16. through 16. Yes, He will pay back misery and anguish to every human being who does evil, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, but glory and honor and shalom to everyone who keeps doing what is good to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who have sinned outside the framework of Torah will die outside the framework of Torah. All who have sinned within the framework of Torah will be judged by Torah. For it is not merely the hearers of Torah whom God considers righteous, it's rather the doers of what Torah says who will be made righteous in God's sight. For whenever Gentiles, who have no Torah, do naturally what the Torah requires, then these, even though they don't have the Torah, for themselves are Torah. For their lives show that the, that the conduct the Torah dictates is written on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness to this. For their conflicting thoughts sometimes 
accuse them, sometimes defend them. On a day when God passes judgment on people's inmost secrets, this is according to the good news as I proclaim it, He does this through the Messiah Yeshua. Okay, now for a more in-depth study of this passage, you can go to Torah class website or app and look up the study on the book of Romans. But to focus on the issue at hand of whether there exists a single common divine law for all humans, even those who have no knowledge of the existence of the Torah, that would be Gentiles mainly, Paul says there is a law intrinsic to our human nature. It was placed there by God. Therefore, no human has an excuse for breaking that law. See, the law written on their hearts, biblically, heart means mind, so it's the law written on their minds, in reality, is what theologians mean by natural law. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about it as a man's rational participation in the eternal law. What he means is that God's universe is an orderly, rational one, and we are rational beings. Thus, there's a lot we're able to rationally discern and simply by instinct know about what we should and shouldn't do. Those who have never heard of the Ten Commandments already know it's wrong to murder even if they do it anyway, or even if they try to rationalize a certain type of murder is not really murder. At its most basic level, natural law says, do good and avoid evil. We start moral discussions from an advantage. See, we don't have to show that, what, that, that, that we should do good and avoid evil. We can merely show what is good versus what is evil, and then our, let our consciences do the rest. I think this is a little easier to comprehend if we think of the natural law in terms of the very earliest divine moral code which must begin with the premise that there is such a thing as morality. There is such a thing as right and wrong. However, when we agree that there exists such a thing within mankind as morality, the next issue is, well, who defines it? Who determines what's right? Who determines what's wrong for all humanity? See, we only have a couple of paths to go here. Either someone outside of the human sphere defines it and then bestows it universally over all humanity, or humans defined it. And so it will by nature very nation by nation, if not nearly individual by individual. See, on its face, that a moral 
code could be different for different people is absurd. It's absurd. Because then there would be no solid basis for deciding what morality is. How do you do that? It would mean that there is no objective standard for nations or for individuals to follow or to be judged by. Morality becomes a subjective free-for-all, self-determined. Or put it another way, God meets out various moralities for various people. I can lie, you can't. You can murder, I can't. Therefore, in the judgment that's coming, the one we're all going to eventually face, we wouldn't even know in advance by what standard we're going to be judged. Now, Amos opens up this can of worms, perhaps not even knowing he did. After all, when we read the list of crimes, the sin, the rebellion of those six pagan nations, they are all taken from the Torah, which itself is but a nuanced expansion of the natural law. That's all it is. Torah is not different than the natural, natural law. It's simply written down. And it's written down in more specifics. It offers case examples as compared to the natural law that God made part of our human DNA. Amos doesn't even bother to address why these six pagan nations that weren't given the Torah are to be judged by it. For him, it's a given. The natural law and the Torah law, well, they're one and the same. They present the same objective standard of morality. What is it that Paul said? We just read it in Romans 2, 14, 15, For whenever Gentiles, who have no Torah, do naturally, do in their nature, what the Torah requires, then these, even though they don't have the Torah, for themselves are Torah. For their lives show that the conduct the Torah dictates, it's written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness to this. For their conflicting thoughts sometimes accuse them, sometimes defend them. You get that? So what does that mean for believers? Christian, Messianic, however one wishes to identify oneself. Christianity says that the moral code God gave to Moses is dead and gone. And that this happened on the cross. Amos says, as does Yeshua, as Paul also says, there is but one universal standard of morality. And it applies to all nations, all people, at all times, and all eras. The standard is the natural law that expanded into the law of Moses, and ignorance of it is no excuse to disobey it, because the foundational principles on which it was given are the same as what was, what's always been written on human hearts. 
That principle, as does the law of Moses, continue to exist, not just for Jews, nor even only for Christians, but for all mankind. As the end times comes to its climax, it will be on that basis of a universal, divinely given right and wrong that each human who has ever lived is going to be judged. Forgiveness for disobedience to that divine moral code will be given based on sincere trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those who have not trusted, well, they're already condemned. Well, back to verse 3 now and the fate of Damascus. Aram was a constant foe of Israel. There was open warfare between Aram and Israel all during the 9th and 8th centuries BC. And what we find Yehovah accuse Aram, Damascus, of is a pattern of cruelty. As Douglas Stewart puts it, the crimes, the Peshot, better meaning rebellions, are violations of the implicit worldwide covenant. That is, rebelliousness against Yehovah's sovereign law. The most infamous crime they committed, according to God's way of judging it, was their attack on Gilead. Now, the wording uses the agricultural metaphor of Gilead being threshed with a threshing sled, a sled that had iron spikes in it. Gilead was a name given to the entire region where the two and a half tribes of Israel that had determined to settle on the east side of the Jordan River resided. The particular atrocity that Amos seems to be referring to can be reasonably identified because of the inclusion of the names Ben-Hadad and Hazael in the passage in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 8, starting at verse 7, says this, Elisha went to Damasek, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, was ill, and he was told, the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, take with you a gift, go meet the man of God and consult Adonai through him, ask if I will recover from this illness. Hazael went to meet him, taking with him a gift that included everything good Damasek had, forty camel loads. He came, he stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you. He asked, Will I recover from this illness? And Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will surely recover, even though Adonai has shown me that he will surely die. Then the man of God fixed his gaze on him for so long that Hazael became embarrassed. Finally, Elisha began to cry. And Hazael asked, Why is my Lord crying? And he answered, Because I know the disasters you will bring on the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with a sword. You will dash little ones to pieces and rip their pregnant women apart. Hazael said, But what is your servant? Nothing but a dog. How could he do anything of such magnitude? And Elisha answered, Adonai has shown me that you will be king over Aram. A couple of chapters later in 2 Kings we read, 2 Kings 10, 32-33, it was during that period that Adonai began to dismember Israel. Hazael attacked them 
throughout the territory of Israel, east of the Jordan, all the land of Gilead. The Gadi, the Rebuni, the Manashi, in other words, the, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, Manesha, from the Aroer to the Arnon River, including Gilead and Bashan. So in Amos 1.4, Jehovah announces the punishment He's going to inflict on Aram and is given in terms of warfare of that era, which always involved fire. Setting captured cities on fire. Well, that was standard operating procedure. Okay, in verse 5, we are told that the gate bar is going to be broken. This is referring to this large piece of timber used to lock the gate and keep intruders out. So, to break the bar is to forcefully enter into the city for the purpose of ransacking it. Next, God says He will keep the residents of Damascus from fleeing to Bekat Avon, or in English, the Valley of Iniquity. Now, since no one would name a place in their own nation something like that, then this is a nasty epithet that Amos assigned to the place. Very likely it was a place where the religious cult of Aram was practiced and so an idol of their god was located there. Now, no one is certain of where this place was located, but clearly it was important to the people of Aram. Now, the mention of Kerr is interesting. Kerr was where the people of Aram originally migrated from. It's located in eastern Mesopotamia. Kerr, well, just as God threatened to send Israel back to Egypt, back to oppression, for their rebellion against Him, God said He's now going to reverse Aram's history and send them back to where they came from, Kerr. See, look, there's a reason ancient people moved from one place to another. They didn't just call United Van Lines. There's a reason they would move a long way away. They were having serious problems where they were, and their survival was in question. So, whatever life was like in Kerr before their migration to Aram, that is what the Arameans were going to experience again in consequence of violating God's moral code. Well, verse 6 begins God's judgment oracle against Philistia. And it begins, as all eight of them do, incorporating that 3-4 number formula. So, for all of Philistia's many crimes against God's moral code, including the one that is listed, they are going to be severely punished. And notice that, like in the previous Oracle of Doom, that it is not Philistia that's cited, but rather it's Gaza. Gaza was the southernmost city-state of the Philistine nation that extended as far north as Ashdod and it included Ashkelon and Ekron. Gaza was just representative of the entire Philistine domain that is going to be dealt with catastrophically. It was probably the most important place in Philistia because Gaza was, because it was where the roads of two very important trade routes intersected. What is important to understand about this 
is that one of the main purposes of those two important trade routes was the slave trade. The slave trade. This repugnant business in human trafficking. Perhaps as much or more so than the actual stated indictment against Gaza is indicative of the character of Philistia as Jehovah views it. Now, one of the most heinous crimes they committed is said to be when they exiled and, and sold an entire population of people to Edom. Probably this means that Philistia conquered some people group, captured them, and then sold them as but commodities to wealthy people in Edom. Now, selling slaves was a most profitable venture. One of Edom's primary sources of wealth at this time was copper mining. Copper mining chewed up and spit out people as the conditions for mining were horrific. The mines looked nothing like what we see today. In Timnah, a place in the southernmost region of Israel, we can find the remnants of copper mines that go back to the time of Amos and even earlier. The mine shafts are barely two feet in diameter. So the miners had to slither down into these dark holes like a snake returning to his underground home. Only by the light of a torch could they operate. There was no ventilation provided. Miners died by the truckload. So a constant stream of replacements was needed. Naturally, the Edomites wanted foreigners as slaves to be used as miners, not their own people, because their lives would be short and miserable. Some slaves were likely used in Edom's shipping business in agriculture. Now, interestingly, this kidnapping of people, selling them into slavery, not surprisingly, forbidden by Torah. And the penalty for doing it was death. Exodus 21.16, whoever kidnaps someone must be put to death regardless of whether he's already sold him or the person is found still in his possession. Now, typically, it was thought by Israelites that God's ordinance against kidnapping and making slaves of people applied primarily to their own Hebrew people, not to foreigners. But clearly, here in Amos, this prohibition applies universally to everyone. Now, the emphasis then is on the act of enslavement itself, and it is considered by Jehovah to be immoral and inhuman. The ethnicity or the nationality of the victims matters not at all. And by the way, one of the rationalizations for slavery in Europe and later in America was that the biblical law against it applied only to Israelites. Therefore, Gentile Christians, well, we were perfectly free to capture by slaves. It wasn't wrong, so no offense to God. See, when you throw away the law of Moses, this is where it will lead you. It can't help. 
Now verse 9, verse 9 moves us to the next nation to be judged, Zor. Zor and Tyre, that's the same place. Zor was a very powerful city-state operating on the shores of the Mediterranean region in the uh, of the Mediterranean in the region of um, Phoenicia. Located northwest of Israel, their economy was based on shipping, trading, and fishing. But Tyre too was a slave trafficking nation, and they became notorious for it. For some reason, the other primary city-state of the Phoenicia region, Sidon, is left out of the conversation. Slave trading is at the heart of the judgment against Zor, not because they captured and sold slaves, but rather because they provided the transportation system to move these slaves to far-flung places. I mean, just think of the modern drug trafficking cartels, where a major part of the organization is called mules. Mules don't acquire the drugs, they don't package the drugs, they don't even sell the drugs. They just simply transport them from one place to another for those who do. Think of the old-fashioned crime of bank robbing, whereby one person might be the driver of the getaway car, who doesn't plan the operation, doesn't even do the robbing, but rather only drives the participants to and from the crime scene. Our criminal laws often seem to go easier on the mules and the getaway drivers than on the others. Interestingly, whereas the Philistines, Gaza, were sentenced to death for acquiring and selling slaves, Zor was sentenced only to the destruction of their city for transporting them. The Law of Moses provides various sentences. And these sentences are always proportional to the seriousness of a person's participation in a criminal activity, and that seems to be what we're seeing uh, being carried out here. Why the difference in punishments? Now, the other issue brought up as cause for Zora's judgment is they broke a covenant with kinsmen. Now, actually, what it most literally says is a covenant of brotherhood, a term used here and nowhere else in the Bible. It's unique for here. So there is disagreement on exactly what this means. A covenant with whom? Was it with a brother in the literal sense? Or was it with a treaty partner with whom they had a brother-like closeness of relationship? Now clearly the act a breaking that treaty was seen by God as an act of treachery and basic dishonesty that was most serious in his eyes. There is a, um, a sense in the tone of this oracle that perhaps the treaty was between Tyre and Israel. Maybe. If so, then Jehovah would have been named as the guarantor of the covenant of peace, so it was his place to punish a covenant violator. 
Further, the mention of Edom and the term brotherhood might indicate that this is speaking of a treaty with Edom's brother, since it was Esau that founded Edom and Jacob that founded Israel, then perhaps this is the obscure connection we need to look for. We do know of a peace treaty between Phoenicia and Israel that first occurred during the time of King David, when Hiram was the king of the Phoenicia region. This is alluded to in 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Kings 5. It is outright stated as a fact when Solomon took over the throne from his father in 2 Chronicles 2 and in later verses of 1 Kings chapter 5. So perhaps this is the covenant of brotherhood that's being referenced. Part of the reason for the belief that such a covenant existed has to do with the way that 1 Kings 5.15 is constructed. And after I read this to you, I'll explain there's more to this than meets the eye. In 1 Kings 5.15, we read this, Hiram king of Zor sent his servants to Shlomo, Solomon, because he had heard that they had anointed him king in his father's place, and Hiram had always loved David. Now the key word is love, or loved. Ahav or Ahab in, in Hebrew. Let's focus on a few minutes on this common and much used word in the Bible and what it actually meant to the people of the Bible era. Now, while it might seem a little bit difficult to wrap your brain around at first, it is necessary to grasp the unassailable fact that the inherent nature of languages is they are not created in a vacuum. That is, language doesn't just spring up from nowhere. Rather, a language is always an offshoot from an older and already existing language. Clearly, it is not impossible that an exception or two might exist. For instance, several European languages stem from Latin. The Hebrew language is no different because it sprang from a set of earlier languages called Semitic languages as spoken and written in what we today loosely call the Middle East. So Hebrew words will usually have what is called cognates, and another closely related language, and often in more than one language, that existed well before the Hebrew language became a separately identifiable language all of its own. A cognate, this is a word present in two or more different languages that shares eh, spelling or meaning or pronunciation, which although not necessarily perfectly identical in every detail, the words are intimately related. It is the ongoing academic study and search for cognates for the ancient Hebrew language, what is usually called Biblical Hebrew, that gives us more in-depth understanding the intent of the words of the original Biblical authors, and therefore assuming the author was inspired in his writings, the intent of God. Now I mentioned the term ancient Hebrew 
because the biblical Hebrew language has definite differences between it and the modern conversational Hebrew as it is spoken and written today, and in many cases even with the Masoretic Hebrew of the 10th century that Old Testament, Testament uh, that Old Testaments draw from. Now, more often than not, Bible translators approach Hebrew to English translation by filtering the Hebrew through the meanings of words in the Masoretic or even in the more modern Hebrew language dialects that simply did not exist in that form when the Bible was written. So how can we know for certain what words meant in the ancient Hebrew form that hasn't existed for centuries? Well, the best way is to search for language cognates in other and older Semitic languages, the meanings of which are often better defined and understood, and then applying that meaning to the Hebrew. That is what we're about to do as concerns the Hebrew word ahav, or in English, love. So back in 1 Kings 5.15 we read, Hiram king of Zor sent his servants to Shlomo because he had heard that they had anointed him king in his father's place, and Hiram had always loved David. Now the complete, uh, rather the uh, King James Version of the same passage says, Hiram was ever a lover of David. Now in modern times, as we read through the eyes of Westerners, the tone of these English words has been taken by some to mean that Hiram had a homosexual love affair with David, which at best is merely incorrect, but far more likely it's an outright intellectual dishonesty. The issue lies in the misunderstanding of the word ahav, love. A cognate word for it in Akkadian, which is a much earlier Semitic language, is ra'amu, which means to love. Now, this word is used in the sphere of politics and treaties, and it has to do with loyalty and faithfulness. In the now famous archaeological find called the Armana Letters, we read, Should my brother increase tenfold the friendship, the Ra, Ra Amutah, and brotherliness, Ahutah, between us over that maintained by his father, then we will love, we will Ra'amu each other very much. This is directly speaking about a treaty of peace. It's not speaking about human affection. In another ancient letter concerning the terms of a treaty between Esarhaddon and a vassal king, we read, You will love, you will ra'amu, Ashurbanipal, as you love yourselves. <laughs> Sound familiar? Perhaps that last phrase has a familiar ring to it. We're going to get to that in a minute. See, here's the point. While in no doubt there are instances in the Bible where the word ahav, love, indicates a warm affection or a romantic intimacy, there are at least as many instances whereby it simply means faithfulness and loyalty. 
and very often in the context of loyalty and faithfulness to a superior or to the terms of a treaty. As concerns the issue of Zor breaking a covenant, and of the book of 1 Kings mentioning a love between David and King Hiram, in the case of this love, it is a political treaty language. It has nothing to do with romance or affection. Thus, it is fairly certain that the covenant that Moses was speaking about was between Phoenicia, Tyre, and Israel. During the time that David was king, of course. But now let's examine for a moment what the impact of this new understanding of the biblical word for love ought to have upon believers and Bible students. Yeshua says that the two fundamental principles or commandments upon which all other principles and commandments are built are, as taken from Matthew 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We can know with certainty that the term love, as used in these two commandments, is the ancient Hebrew word ahav because Christ was quoting from Deuteronomy 6 about loving God and from Leviticus 19.18 about loving your neighbor, both of which were written in Hebrew. The entire passage revolving around loving God in Deuteronomy 6 is all about obedience to God's commandments. That's what it's all about. Without doubt, then, the term love is used here has nothing to do with affection or warm feelings. It has nothing to do with emotions. Rather, it is meant in the political sense of having loyalty, showing faithfulness to God. To love God means, biblically, to demonstrate your loyalty to God by obeying Him. Unfortunately, Christianity long ago adopted the Greek sense of love in which it nearly always points to romance, affection, even erotic pleasures. Fellow believers, this might bother some of you to hear that God was not seeking your emotional affections towards Him, but rather it was a pragmatic demand for your determined obedience and loyalty to Him in the form of obeying the Torah. Now, as for the sense of love, ahav, and loving one's neighbor as we love ourselves, let's begin by noticing a very key phrase in what Yeshua said. He said that the call to love your neighbor is what? It's like the call to love God. Like. In what way? What sense is it alike? Recall how in the treaty terms between Esar Hadon and an unnamed vassal king we read, you will love Asherbrun Nepal as you love yourselves. This meant to show as much 
loyalty and fidelity to Ashurbanipal as you showed to yourselves. And I have no doubt this is the substantive meaning of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, the command's not about conjuring up warm feelings or sentiments, emotions for your neighbor. Rather, it's about having as much practical concern, loyalty, for our neighbor's needs and well-being from the standpoint of it being a God-given command that we do so. Now, could it incorporate some level of affection for your neighbor, more meaning people you come into contact with, with regularly? Most certainly. But that was not, never was, the core issue or sense of the commandment. And Jesus certainly didn't change its meaning from the original. Christianity long ago replaced the sense and the purpose of God's two fundamental commandments that put an obligation upon us as His worshipers to be selfless and loyal when it comes to obeying Him, and also it becomes a duty of ours to look after the needs of other human beings that we come into contact with in practical, tangible ways. Instead, this newer and misguided sense of the commandment says that we are to hold some kind of deep or strongly felt emotional attachment to God and to our neighbor. This newer sense of those biblical commands has led us astray. It's led us into sin after sin without ever even realizing it. Okay, we'll continue with Amos chapter 1 next time.